Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm really pleased that you joined us today because this is a very interesting chapter that we're going to be covering called The Five Precepts, A Householder's Guide to Daily Practice. If you've ever heard that Gautama Buddha taught no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no intoxicants, then you haven't really fully dived into Gautama Buddha's teachings and the words that he used to share these precepts with us. They're much more interesting than these very simple or rudimentary categorizations or descriptions of what he taught in the five precepts. And by looking at the Buddha's words, which we're going to be doing today, we're going to further understand what he was really teaching us in terms of the five precepts and how they can apply to our daily life. So I'm going to be sharing with you each individual precept using the Buddha's words and then going through some very detailed topics of how do we actually apply this precept to our life and to our daily practice. Because it's not as easy as a black and white kind of application of really any of these teachings. There's a real large gray area. And one of the things that a teacher does for you is helps you to see how you can apply these teachings in that big gray area so that you can figure out how to best apply these teachings to your life. And as we go, it's important that you understand that the five precepts aren't rules. They're not sins. They're not something that you're going to be punished for if you don't practice them or rewarded for if you do practice them. It's more about guiding your practice and helping you to understand the guidance that the Buddha shared and why you actually are practicing these. Because remember, everything that the Buddha taught is about training the mind. So there's certain aspects of all of these teachings, particularly here in the five precepts, that are guided towards and help you to focus on training the mind. And the more you understand the why behind each of these precepts, the more you'll be able to apply them to your daily life. So rather than just give you the precepts and give you the text that the Buddha shared, it's better that we share the Buddha's words, that we look at some various topics as it relates to our modern life and what we're doing in modern life, and then talk about how we actually apply this precept to our life. And as we go, as always, I'm going to be opening up things for questions to give you guys a chance to ask any questions from your life because you might have a situation that you're unsure of how this particular preset may or may not apply to your life. And that's one of the things that you can get help with with a teacher is helping you to understand how to apply these in your life. And then it comes to your personal choices. 
it comes to your personal choices of how you choose to implement these into your life in order to get the most benefit. Because everything that we're talking about with the Buddhist teachings is all based on free will choices. And based on those free will choices with the guidance of the Buddha, you will notice more and more improvement in your life and in the condition of the mind. So it's wonderful that you've decided to join and I'm going to go through today's class with each individual precept. And when we get to the point for questions, you'll be able to put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section and our moderators, James, Basa, Manal, will see those and make sure that they get asked during the class. And then for those of you in Zoom, you'll be able to electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly, depending on how you would like to do that. So let me go ahead and start sharing the slides that we have prepared for today's class to help you guys learn and understand what it is that we're actually teaching. First, let's just start with understanding what are the five precepts and how they apply to our life. The five precepts are guidance that significantly reduces unwholesome gamma production, assisting you in producing a pure mind and a pure life. Remember that all the Buddhist teachings are helping to expose us to this natural law of gamma. Just like as we grew up as infants and toddlers and young children, we had to get familiar with this natural law of gravity and how it works and how does it function so that we can now function in the world more peacefully, understanding this natural law of gravity. What the Buddhist teachings are doing for you is helping you to understand this natural law of gamma and the more that you understand it, the more that you can function in the world peacefully and make wise decisions for yourself. So all of his teachings, whether it be the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, here the Five Precepts and others, are all about this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action result, essentially the results of our decisions. If we make good, wholesome choices based on the natural law of gamma, then we're going to experience wholesome results. If we make unwholesome decisions, we're going to experience unwholesome results. We're going to actually have a chapter coming up in two weeks where we're going to focus specifically on the natural law of gamma. But really, everything that the Buddha is teaching is really exposing more and more of this natural law of gamma and kind of pulling the covers back so that you can understand it more and more and more. And the five precepts are exactly that. The five precepts will significantly reduce unwholesome gamma production, but the five precepts themselves wouldn't actually eliminate all of your unwholesome gamma production. That's the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path will completely eliminate all unwholesome gamma production through producing only wholesome gamma. So when you learn each of those steps, right view through right concentration, you're learning each individual step and how to practice that. And the more that you understand each step and you dial that in closer and closer, you're going to have more and more wisdom where you will be able to make wiser and wiser decisions. Well, the five precepts plug into this central teaching of the Eightfold Path where the five precepts helps us to get some more insight into right speech. It also helps us to get more insight into right action. So 
while we talked about those steps as part of the Eightfold Path in the past, here with the five precepts, it's really going to expand our understanding of right speech and right action. So it's all based on this natural law of gamma, essentially the results of our decisions. There's no one word translation of this word gamma. So I still need to use this word gamma. And oftentimes people think of it as this mystical, magical thing, maybe this punishment and rewards or this dark cloud that kind of follows us around and makes sure that you know punishments are dealt out. That's not what gamma is at all. It's just cause and effect action result, the results of our decision. So as we make good, wise, wholesome decisions, we're going to experience good, wholesome results in our life. And the more of those that we string together through practicing the Eightfold Path, then we're going to see that the condition of our mind and the condition of our life just gradually improves more and more. The five precepts are detailed teachings that really help us to expand our understanding of the entire Eightfold Path, and they're based on harmlessness. Because remember, right intention is all about harmlessness and not causing harm to other beings. Because if we cause harm to other beings, then harm is going to come to us. But also, there's precepts in here where we actually cause harm to ourselves as well. Essentially, this is like if you kick up some sand or some dirt and the wind's blowing, it's going to blow right back in your face, right? That's essentially what the natural law of gamma is, is that if we do unwholesome things, it's going to be like kicking up dirt in the air and it blows right back in our face and we've created our own complications for ourselves. So there's nobody here punishing us. There's nobody here rewarding us. It's our own wholesome decisions that lead to wholesome results and then vice versa are unwholesome decisions that lead to unwholesome results. The teachings that we share in the five precepts will help you to understand how the potential outcomes of our decisions can lead to these wholesome results or these unwholesome results. They're teachings that you may have been exposed to by your primary caregivers. So while someone might say that, you know, I just started learning Buddhist teachings last month, or I just started the path to enlightenment last year or six months ago, in reality, we've been on this path our entire life and maybe even multiple lives because we've been involved in this natural laws of existence for multiple lives. And growing up as a child, you were most likely influenced and taught certain aspects of these precepts by your primary caregivers. But the level of depth and clarity of what we received as a child may not amount to the same level of clarity that we can get from the Buddhist teachings. And this is why if we look at those rudimentary translations of no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, no intoxicants, it doesn't really fully explain to us what we need in order to really practice these teachings. But these are kind of the rudimentary ways that people share things and your primary caregivers most likely shared some teachings along these lines with you. And as they did, we either chose to practice those or not, and we experienced the results of them. So as I talk today about certain application of these five precepts and some of the things that we do in order to practice them or not practice them 
you may have experienced some of these things in your life already. So remember, it's not about believing anything about these five precepts. As we talk today, and we talk about all the unique situations and the ways that you can apply these precepts, you should reflect on them because we're going to learn them today. But then even starting today, you can reflect and say, well, if I did that, would it lead to wholesome results or unwholesome results? And you can actually look at your life and things that you've done in your life and see how what the Buddha is sharing either led to wholesome results for you or unwholesome results for you. And this will further help you see the truth in his teachings and get more clarity, more wisdom so that you make wiser and wiser choices for yourself as you go forward in life. So this is what the five precepts are. They're really helping to knock down a lot of unwholesome decisions that we make. It significantly reduces that unwholesome gamma. It plugs into the Eightfold Path, and the Eightfold Path is what really eliminates the unwholesome gamma production, and it really helps us to further understand what our primary caregivers were teaching us as we were growing up, but giving us much more detail in which to apply these in our daily life. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on what the five precepts are before we move forward and actually start learning them one by one. So David, is it fair to say that rather than rules, the precepts are in some sense explanations of the law of karma essentially? Absolutely, it's helping you to understand each aspect of the natural law of karma as it relates to these individual precepts. So, you know, whether we're talking about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, all of these are really leading to you to have a better understanding of the natural law of gamma. And these aren't rules. I don't see them as rules at all because the Buddha is not going to step out somewhere and punish us if we don't practice his teachings. If there's a rule, there's the assumption that there must be some punishment or some enforcer of that rule. But they're not rules. It's helping expose you to how this natural law of gamma functions. And the more that you understand that, the more you'll choose on your own to not kick up that dirt or that sand in order to blow right back in your face. Thanks, David. We have no more questions. Looks like we're ready to go into the first preset. Okay, well, let's talk about this one. So here at the top, I'm using the Buddha's language in order to help you understand the precept. And then we're going to go through some different scenarios and help you understand how we can apply this precept to our life. And this is taken directly from the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. So if you've read this book or you plan to read that particular chapter of the book, then you'll see this in there in written form. But today we're going to talk about it and discuss it. So it comes to life a bit more for you and give you a chance to ask questions. And if you don't have a version of this book, you can download it for free wherever you're seeing this. There should be a download link that you can download the book and you can get a printed copy or you can take that PDF and go print it yourself at whatever printer you would like to print it at. So this first precept is abandoning the taking of life, refraining from taking life without stick or swords, diligent, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Now this is the guidance that the Buddha is giving us. And 
when you hone in on this precept, it's really saying, yeah, don't kill, right? That's why people translate this as no killing. But there's more here that he's really sharing with us in terms of living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. This compassion, or also, even though it's not in the precept, we can think about loving kindness. Loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, practicing goodwill. Compassion is concern for the misfortune of all beings, concern for others' misfortune. Well, what this precept is doing by teaching you to not kill is it's helping you to eliminate any kind of anger, hatred, ill will, hostility, resentment that's in the mind. We know that if we kill, it's going to cause harm to another being for sure, because we're taking the life of that being. And depending on what kind of being, whether it's a human being or a dog or an ant or a, you know some other insect, there's going to be various societal laws that are going to be at play there. But then there's this moral kind of natural law of gamma that we talk about. So what we're doing here with this precept is we're cultivating this compassion. While the precept is guiding us to not take life, it's really also guiding us to cultivate this compassion in the mind because it's helping us to eradicate any kind of anger, hatred, or ill will, which is one of the major aspects of practice to attain enlightenment is to eliminate hatred, anger, ill will. That's the second poison or that second unwholesome root, which we're actually going to be talking about next week in chapter eight. We'll talk about the three poisons and how these really affect the mind and how to actually eliminate them. So this precept is all about cultivating this compassion, this loving kindness, and getting to a point where we don't cause harm to others. So you might reflect on some of the things that I shared in the book in terms of what it means to practice this teaching. And in order to do that, you need to first understand what is a living being, because that's what the Buddha is talking about, not taking the life of. Well, a living being needs three things to essentially be a living being. There needs to be an egg, a sperm, and a consciousness or the mind. If there's these three things, this is a living being. Essentially, we've got human beings and we've got animals or insects or how all those different species and beings that are in the animal realm. That's what a living being is. A plant isn't a living being. While we consider them to be alive and we talk about plants as being alive because they grow and we nurture them and we give them water, they don't form from an egg, a sperm, and they don't have a consciousness. So they don't have a mind, right? Same thing like bacteria. We often talk about them as being alive or even like a virus. We talk about them as being alive, but they're not a living being because they don't have their own consciousness. So if we're eating plants or we're killing bacteria or viruses because it's harmful to our environment, you're not killing a living being. It's not actual taking of life, right? It's not actually taking of life, which the Buddha is talking about taking life here. He's not talking about killing. We use this word killing in a lot of different ways. 
One of the aspects of this path to enlightenment is understanding language. The more we understand language, the more it helps us to understand this path. We oftentimes use various language in ways that it's really not exactly the real meaning. So if somebody translated this particular precept as no killing, then we might think that killing a plant or harvesting a plant is actually killing it. But what we're doing is we're harvesting it, right? Or the bacteria or virus, it's really eliminating the bacteria or virus. We're not actually killing it if you think about killing as taking life the way that the Buddha is describing it here. So there needs to be an egg, a sperm, and a consciousness, a mind. One of the easy ways to think about a living being is if it's got eyes, if it can move on its own, you know, like a fish can move on its own, a lizard can move on its own, but a tree doesn't have two eyes, therefore it doesn't have the ability to take in something through the eyes, through the nose, through the mouth, through the ears, through bodily contact. It doesn't have these six sense bases to be able to take stimulus in, and it doesn't have the ability to actually get up and walk and move, right? So same thing with bacteria and viruses. They don't have eyes. They don't have the ability to stand up, walk across the room, and sit down, right? There's not free will choices that are going on there because there is no consciousness. So that's how you understand what a living being is. When you get into the next program of the words of the Buddha, we talk about this in terms of the five aggregates. But here, we'll just talk about it in these terms to help you understand this. But there's more deep teachings here that the Buddha shared to further help us understand what a living being is. And it relates to what we call the five aggregates, which you'll learn in the words of the Buddha program if you ever decide to move forward to that. Now that you understand that this precept is about cultivating compassion and we can add loving kindness to that, and it's about not taking the life of a living being, now we can go through different scenarios and you can see for yourself, almost without me teaching, whether or not you would actually choose to do this or not. And depending on how you feel right now, that might not be the way that you'll feel six months or a year or two years from now. Your practice may evolve and you will maybe think about things in a different way the more that you look at the natural law of gamma and the way that you consider this and the way that you've maybe made decisions in the past might change as a result of understanding this natural law of gamma. So if we're interested in not taking life because we're interested in cultivating this compassion and loving kindness to eradicate any ill will or any hatred or anger in our own mind, would we euthanize a human or an animal, right? For me, at this point in my life, I wouldn't do that. There's definitely a time in my life where I wouldn't have said that. I would have had a different answer for that. But understanding what I know now that through situations that I've experienced where my family needed to euthanize an animal, for example, or when I've talked to people that were involved in assisted suicide or euthanasia of a human, while these things may be legal in our various countries or wherever we live, they might be legal 
on a societal level, which means the government isn't going to do anything because we're following the law, this moral, natural law of existence, we can't escape that. And this is why we oftentimes experience guilt or shame or fear as it relates to euthanasia of an animal or a human. When someone puts down an animal or they assist in suicide, even if they think it's the best thing to do at that time, they're often left with guilt or shame or fear or other discontent feelings as a result of that. So remember, this path is about elimination of discontent feelings. If we euthanize a living being, then we're going to experience this guilt, shame, or fear and other discontent feelings, perhaps, as it relates to this particular being. Now, some people think that it's compassionate to kill an animal. If an animal is experiencing cancer or they've been hit by a car or some other thing like this that you know maybe it's the right thing to do to, to euthanize or, or kill this animal or maybe now more and more governments are starting to make it acceptable to euthanize a human if a human has any particular illness that they feel is possible to euthanize a human because the person doesn't want to live with this particular medical condition well what this does is it prematurely ends the life of that animal or that human and the goal in this whole process of the cycle of rebirth is to get closer and closer to enlightenment so that we end this cycle of rebirth and ending a life prematurely isn't going to allow us to experience all the effects and all the results of our decisions in one particular life so by us prematurely ending that animal's life it's actually making it worse for them because they're not going to be able to get as good of a destination in their next rebirth as if we just let them live out their life and allow them to get to the next life and maybe it's a better life for them and also remember that human beings can attain enlightenment at death so the problem we're all experiencing is this discontent mind, but the true problem that we're all experiencing is this cycle of rebirth. So the goal is, if life is going to end, is to ensure that the best conditions are possible for this being to either attain enlightenment at death or to get a better rebirth on their next rebirth. So a human being who's sick, even with cancer or other challenging illnesses, they can potentially attain enlightenment at death when they die of cancer or any other particular medical condition. But if there's a craving to kill and exterminate and that person has decided they would like to exterminate their life, then there's still craving, desire, attachment there at the end of life. They haven't yet extinguished it. So for sure, there's going to be rebirth. Whereas if they live the rest of that life, they could potentially get enlightenment at death and escape this whole cycle of rebirth. So euthanasia is something that would cause complications for any individuals that are involved in those decisions in this life. And it would also cause complications for any being that's being euthanized. The same thing with the termination of pregnancy. 
Now, whether these things happen or not, again, it's up to each individual to make their own choices. I'm not making any judgments or saying what any particular laws or political position should be. That's not what any of this is about at all. In fact, the Buddha encouraged his closest students to not even discuss politics. So I actually don't discuss politics with anyone, and I don't even have any particular political views other than let's just all treat each other well, right? That's that's my only political view. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about abortion. And there's plenty of places where abortion is legal, and there's some where it's illegal. But again, that's a societal law that's based on humans decisions to make certain laws but our laws our societal laws are always going to be imperfect because they're created by human beings this natural law of gamma isn't created by human beings it just exists it's part of the natural laws of existence and once again if you've ever been part of a termination of a pregnancy yourself or you know someone that has they will often be experiencing some type of guilt or shame or other feelings associated with doing that. And that's because of the natural law of gamma. So if we're trying to eliminate this discontentedness, which includes that guilt or shame or fear, then it's this aspect of termination of pregnancy that's actually going to produce that in the mind. And if you've done any of these things that we're talking about today in the past, they're in the past. You know, we got to let those things go. We need to completely move on and realize that, okay, well, now's a different time. I have a different set of wisdom, a different set of understanding, and now I can improve my decision-making for the future. So there's nothing here in any of the Buddhist teachings, whereas if you've done certain things in the past, now that means that you're kind of doomed for the rest of your life, right? And you're going to be subject to rebirth. The idea is is that through learning these teachings and gaining this wisdom, even if you've done any of these things in the past, you can now make better choices, wiser choices for the rest of your life and experience better results associated with that. So you have to decide for yourself if you're ever involved in these decisions of whether you do these things or not. But what the Buddhist teachings are sharing with you and what I'm sharing with you is that if someone does terminate pregnancy or they're involved in that decision, there's going to be discontentedness associated with that decision. Same thing with suicide. And we kind of talked about this a little bit related to euthanasia, that suicide is going to cause complications. If people have been taught that they only get one life, then when they feel anger or sadness or deep despair or misery, they might see suicide as an option to end their suffering or end the complications of life. And they might think that that actually solves the problem if they've been taught they only ever get one life. But this isn't the truth. There's this cycle of rebirth. And if someone commits suicide, then there's craving for extermination of life. And there is going to be rebirth most likely not in the human realm at all, and they're going to be moving down into the lower realms, which becomes like a prison where the beings are trapped and very difficult to get back to the human realm. They will still eventually cycle back to the human realm at some point, but once they're down in those lower realms, there's just constant rebirth, and it takes a long time to ever get back to the human realm again with the opportunity to attain enlightenment. 
where with someone who's feeling misery or pain or sadness or any of these kind of aspects that plague the mind, if they understood that the Buddhist teachings are the door out of that, that's the escape, is to learn and practice these teachings to train the mind to eliminate the sadness, the despair, the displeasure. That's the way to escape this whole cycle of rebirth that they're experiencing. If they commit suicide, it's actually not going to solve the problem. It's actually going to make the suffering worse. It's going to make this whole cycle of rebirth for them actually worse. So the more that people understand that the Buddhist teachings can help train the mind and eliminate this discontentedness, a person who's contemplating suicide can move towards the Buddhist teachings. Because most people will share with you that if they are interested in committing suicide or if you've ever contemplated this yourself, people often aren't interested to die. They just would like the suffering and the misery to end. And they don't know how. They feel trapped because they don't know that they're actually causing their own discontentedness. They don't realize the Four Noble Truths. They don't understand those teachings. They don't understand the Eightfold Path. They don't understand this craving, anger, and ignorance. They don't understand the cycle of rebirth. And that's what leads to an ill-informed decision, an unwise decision, where someone might decide to commit suicide or participate in assisted suicide. Same kind of thing, right? It's going to cause continuous problems. Capital punishment is another thing that we do nowadays in some governments. Now, again, this isn't political for me. I'm not thinking in that term at all. What I'm sharing is the natural law of gamma. When we kill people in capital punishment, it's going to cause complications because on one hand, people are learning from their governments, for example, to not kill but yet the government is actually killing in capital punishment and war, these government-sponsored killings. Well, if the government is doing this killing, whenever they don't agree with someone's intentions, their speech, and their actions, and we deem that this person is no longer a person that we want in our society, and the government chooses to kill them, then what the government is teaching the population is when you disagree with someone's intentions, speech, and actions, then you kill them. And this is why places where we see capital punishment being used the most, we will see killing in the streets, and we will see a lot of problems in the streets of our cities and our towns because the population is learning on a certain level that if you disagree with someone's intentions, speech, and actions, then you kill them. And this is where the gamma or the results of our decisions. So as a government, as a society of people, if we're voting, if we're selecting laws and leaders to make those laws, when we make these laws on a societal level and we choose to punish people through killing them, then we're going to see that we're going to have problems in our streets. And we're going to see people that are killing whenever they disagree with someone's intention, speech, and actions. And then with war, you know, we send our soldiers away in different places in order to kill. And the government sponsors this and says that it's okay if you go do this because we have a certain objective that we're trying to meet and it requires killing. And this person isn't going to 
be punished, so to speak, by society in terms of going to jail for this particular killing. Whereas if they killed in their own country, they would actually go to jail, but the government's allowing them to go to another country and actually kill. Well, this is why we see soldiers that have a lot of problems where there's PTSD, there's suicides a lot in veteran populations. There's a lot of challenges that soldiers have when they come back from war, physical amputations and deformities, mental challenges, and all kinds of issues plague that population of people. Well, in terms of society and what the government told them is that they're doing something good to go to this foreign land and kill. But the natural law of gamma is still there. And this is why morally the human being knows that they did something that was morally improper. And this is why when they come back from wars, they will experience what we call PTSD or they also have depression, anxiety, uh, flashbacks to experiences when they were in war. And oftentimes there's lots of suicide. There's usually more soldiers that will die from suicide after a war than the actual war itself. And this is the gamma of those individuals who have chosen to go off and kill in a war. It was their decision, cause and effect, and it led to this particular result. And then, of course, you know, murdering just for the sake of, I disagree with your intentions, your speech, or your actions, and there's murders in the streets. This is an intentional killing that is going to produce unwholesome results. And we are, as a society, have laws that take care of that one, right? Society says, you know, that one is kind of improper, but all these other ones, oh, you know, we're kind of okay with those on a certain level in some societies. But the natural law of Gami is saying you're going to have complications if you do any of these intentional killings. So it's important that you keep that in mind, that it's not about following society's laws. It's about the natural law of Gama. And then let's talk about some other things like DNR or do not resuscitate. This is something that we can oftentimes put in place while we're still alive, that we're choosing to sign a document that says, if we die, our heart stops, we, we can't breathe anymore, we're in some kind of car accident or any kind of medical issue happens to us, we sign a piece of paper that says, you know, do not resuscitate us. And there's people who do that nowadays. This isn't an intentional killing. This person has already died, right? This person is saying all this new modern medicine stuff that's come into play, I'm not interested in you using that in order to bring me back to life. During Gautama Buddha's lifetime, they didn't have you know, all this modern medicine. And we don't have to necessarily use this modern medicine to bring us back to life. What a DNR is essentially doing is the being is saying, I'm okay with dying. And if I die, just allow me to die. Don't feel like you have to go to these great lengths to preserve life because I'm okay with dying. I know that I will die and there's no need to apply all these modern medicines in order to bring me back. So that's not an intentional killing. That's just choosing that, yeah, I'm okay with dying whenever that comes. You might be thinking about defense or protection, that if somebody came into your home and attacked you, 
or even you were outside and somebody physically attacked the physical body, you know, what would you do in that situation? And you've got to decide for yourself in the present moment with clarity of mind of what you're going to do. But in terms of the natural law of gamma, if somebody broke into your house and they're attacking you or otherwise trying to cause physical harm to you or your family, and you chose to defend the physical body, well, this is a defense of the physical body. And if that person happened to die in the process of that, that's their gamma. That's cause and effect, action and result. That's the result of their decisions. If someone's in your home at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning and they've broken in, they're not there to deliver chocolates or flowers. They're there to cause harm. And what I would suggest for someone to do is try to get out of that situation is with the least amount of harm as possible. And if that means that you run and get out of the house and just let them be in the house, outstanding. That's absolutely outstanding. You just run away and leave and just get out of the house, right? That would be ideal. But if you're confronted all the way to the level of you're needing to actually protect the physical body and you needed to cause harm, try to cause the least amount of harm as possible, then you know that your intention was not to hurt and harm others. You were just defending the physical body. And then also you might be interested to consider your consumption of animal products. If we actually consume animal products, this is going to cause harm to other beings. In order for us to consume animal products like the flesh of a fish or a cow or some other being, it's going to require the intentional killing of another being. And this, in my view, wouldn't be living compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Now, some people say, well, if I'm not involved in the intentional killing of that being, I didn't actually kill the being, I just ate it. You know, that means that I, you know, followed this precept. Well, the interesting thing about this is that if you look at what we understand about the ingesting of flesh, you can't get away from the unwholesome results of your decisions to ingest flesh. Because nowadays they're able to do research and they show that there's various toxins in the flesh of meat. And when we eat that, it actually causes harm to our physical body. There's a lot of research that shows that someone who ingests flesh incurs more bodily sickness than someone who doesn't. So you can't escape and run away from the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. If we're causing harm through our decisions and our decision to eat animal products, then it's going to cause harm to us. And you may not be at a point right now where you're ready to let go of meat or you choosing that that's something that is okay for you right now. And that's fine. And that's why there's no judgment of anybody along this path. You choose for yourself what makes sense and what works and how you would like to implement any of these teachings. For me, I chose to eliminate animal products and I did that very gradually. And remember, the truth can be independently verified. You don't have to believe anything that I say to you. If you choose at some point to eliminate animal products from your food intake, you will see the truth for yourself that the body becomes more healthy, 
the mind becomes more healthy, you're going to get more clarity, you're not going to be bogged down by the ingesting of flesh, you're going to notice that if you have issues in your stomach with bacterial infections or diarrhea or what we call food poisoning from time to time, when you eliminate animal consumption, all of that disappears. I used to have challenges with my stomach and I would have you know diarrhea occasionally or vomiting at different times. And as soon as I started to gradually decrease and then eliminate animal products, all of that went away. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on this first precept. You explained that the killing of plants is not a violation of the first precept, essentially. But would destroying plants and destroying the environment actually produce negative climate as well? So the whole basis of the natural law of gamma is harmlessness and practicing harmlessness. So when we're harvesting food for our ingesting of food to sustain our life, you know, we're cultivating crops and we're constantly cultivating crops in order to grow them and use them as food. But we also know that things like trees provide us oxygen and provide taking carbon out of the air. So if we destroyed our forest, then that's going to cause harm and therefore harm is going to come to us. So this is where we need to balance that. But it's not part of this particular precept. It's part of being a conscious individual and being interested to not cause harm. So if we're going to harvest trees the way that we harvest broccoli or cauliflower, well, maybe we take one tree and we plant five, right? That would be a way to kind of balance and find the middle way because we need these substances and these resources in order to sustain our life, to make things like clothing, in order to build houses. So rather than completely destroy all the forest and knock everything down, that would be one side. But to never harvest a tree or broccoli or cauliflower, that wouldn't help us either because we don't have the resources we need. So that's where you gotta find that middle way. And if we're gonna cut down a tree, then maybe let's plant five and that's the way to find the middle in that and not cause harm. Thanks, David. Manal has a follow-up about plants, so let's go to her now. Hi, teacher David. Um, so in terms of uh, harvesting for plants and um, cultivating plants, um, which provide fruit and vegetables, um, I'm morally conflicted about something. Uh, oftentimes plants, which I grow, fall under um, some sort of disease or um, a fungus or, you know, insects that um, are harmful for the plants and we have to oftentimes apply special treatment for the plants in order to sustain the plant and essentially kill off the, um, the insect um, infestation. So. That happens, I mean, I, I regularly keep plants in my house. Some are ornamental, some are fruit-bearing, vegetable-bearing. Um, to what extent um, can I actually uh, make sure that I'm not, you know, that I am conscious of all life? Uh, sometimes these in insects and infestations are the size of a speck of a dust. They're so small, they're called aphids. And I am morally conflicted sometimes. In fact, every time I have to apply treatment or 
make sure that I get rid of them somehow in order for them to not damage the tree or the plant, um, I, I, I have to think twice about it. And I, I do that all the time. So how can I help myself with that? Yeah, so remember, one of the big things on this path is the acquisition or acquiring of wisdom. And we need to apply effort to gain more and more wisdom. Right now, the way that we have grown up and the way that we've been taught is when we have a situation like what you're describing is we turn to a chemical and we oftentimes apply that in order to kill the insects. But if you take some time and seek wisdom, there's actually a lot of natural things that we can do where these insects will just move on. Here in Thailand, they will use things like kaffir lime rinds and other natural products that they will put into the soil or around the plants so that the insects just move on to another place and they don't actually bother their plants. But that requires us to take time and effort to, to learn. And that's part of what this path is all about, is not just learning the Buddhist teachings, but also learning new behaviors and new decisions that we can make in terms of letting go of these chemicals, for example, because these chemicals are very harmful to our environment and they're actually causing a lot of harm. And this is where the animals are picking up the chemicals in the environment and then we're ingesting these. So here in Thailand, there's a lot of knowledge about this stuff. But in places like America, there isn't as much of that. So it requires a lot of research in order to figure it out and then make decisions to go out of your way in order to do this. But then once you do it and you have the knowledge, then it becomes really easy for you to do it. It just requires you to actually take the time and effort to do it. Then there's things like, which isn't in this book, but I'm going to add this onto your question and all is there's things like termites or even bed bugs, right? Like, you know, a bed bug infestation would be very difficult to sprinkle some herbs around and get rid of a bed bug infestation. That's really, really challenging thing. And I don't know of any products right now that are natural that would take care of that. And someday there might be. But what you've also got to look at is this middle way that what this precept is sharing is it's not sharing preserve all life at all cost. That's not what the Buddha shared. He didn't share preserve all life at all cost. He said, live compassionately for the welfare of all living beings, right? So here's a bed bug infestation. And we know that when some being causes harm, then there's going to be harm that comes to it. So a bed bug infestation or termites or things like this, they're causing some massive harm. And it's their gamma as being a being in that particular existence that they're going to be exterminated. And if you choose to do that or how you choose to do that, you can do it in a way that maybe doesn't cause harm to the environment. Now, for me, I'm not involved in any of those decisions in our household anymore. My wife handles all that stuff. But there are things here in Thailand that they have with herbs and other things where you can kind of help the insects move on. But in some cases, the decisions that I see them implement is the termites come and eat a particular product and they take it back to their nest and they all die. And the understanding here is, is that, yeah, these beings are causing harm. They're destroying our house. They're doing all kinds of damage to the home. And this is their gamma as part of that existence. And they will be reborn. 
So this particular precept isn't preserve all life at all costs. It's live compassionate. And you can find the middle way here, Manal, for yourself that maybe you do need to use chemicals and other things like this for the situations that you're encountering right now. But then maybe as you are able, you might choose to find some other ways to kind of move these insects on. We have a question, David, from Claire. I agree with all but one of the precepts when it comes to euthanizing your loving animal. When you have lived with your sweet pet for many years and they grow old beyond their life expectancy, suffer with disease and extreme pain, unable to walk or stand or sit up, etc., how can one not euthanize the poor suffering animal? The problem that the human being is experiencing in this situation is they're experiencing their problems from their own attachment. Their own craving, desire, attachment to the animal is causing your mind to experience discontentedness, the suffering in your mind. But the more that you understand how this natural law of existence work, this natural law of gamma, the cycle of rebirth, you won't necessarily look at this in the same way. And while right now you might feel like, you know, it would be wise to euthanize an animal, the more you understand, the more you practice, you might change your decision. You've got to be willing at some point to look at things differently. And as I mentioned to you at other times in my life, I would have said, yeah, euthanize an animal. That's, you know, kind of the way things work. And I actually killed a lot of animals. I used to work on a farm. We used to cut the throats of goats and sheep and things like this. So I've been participant in those things before, but it led to unwholesome results for me. So if you're involved in this killing of an animal, you're going to experience guilt and shame, fear as a result. Whether you choose to do that or not is your choice. But if you really have compassion for this animal, you would actually allow it to live out its life if it's sick or if it's not well, because that's going to actually help it. It's just probably going to be hard for you because you have attachment to the animal. And because of your craving, desire, attachment, it's causing discontentedness in your mind to see the animal suffer and see the animal have medical condition. But also, once you choose, if you choose to euthanize it, that same craving, desire, attachment, it's going to cause you discontentedness there as well. So your best option in my view, is to allow the animal to live because there's actually been students that have come to me on this question before and they had a dog that the veterinarian was advising that they should put down based on the particular medical condition. And I shared some of the same things that I'm sharing here and I shared that in their Facebook group and that person also got advice from other people in their life and eventually they decided not to put the animal down. Well, a year and a half has gone by and the animal's actually still living and within a few weeks or a few months of when the veterinarian said that the animal should be put down within a few weeks the animal actually rebounded and actually completely came off the medications is completely back to normal as it was prior to this situation so had that person made the choice to put their animal down it was a premature death they were actually causing harm because they were killing when the animal didn't need to be killed. So oftentimes we try to play this role of thinking that we know when is the right time for an animal to die 
or a human to die and that's not what we should be involved in we shouldn't be making those kind of decisions we should let nature take its natural course and that's how we can live compassionately for the welfare of all living beings we have a question from richard does suicide and violence have the same root my spontaneous thought is we are attached to the idea that we want the world to behave according to our thought can you comment on that i don't feel the same way as what you're sharing that I want the world to behave in a certain way, and but I know definitely some people might feel that way. So I can't really comment on your statement because I don't have those same feelings. I'm only interested in my own decisions about my own moral conduct and my own mental discipline and not interested in projecting any requirements or rules for other people to follow. So sorry, Richard, I I can't really comment because I don't have those same kind of thoughts. Thanks, David. Let's go to Basim now for our Zoom questions. Thanks, James. A question from uh, Judith. She says, many of my mates who have chronic illness and disability die from suicide now and again. After such suffering and with this type of death, would any of them possibly find enlightenment during the time of death? If there's a suicide, they're not going to experience enlightenment at death. It's not possible because there's craving to exterminate their life. And that's a craving desire attachment because at that moment, if they're committing suicide, they have a mental longing with a strong eagerness. That's what a craving desire attachment is, a mental longing with a strong eagerness. And if there's any craving in the mind, at the time of death, there's going to be rebirth. And because the death is occurring based on killing, they are going to most likely be reborn into lower realms and they're just making their problems actually worse. A question from Holly. She says, we have a rat in our house and he will not go into the catch and release traps that I bought. He has shoot up everything, including the wood, in the floorboards. My husband finally called an exterminator that put poison out. I hope he lives without eating the poison, but knowing that he might die because of something uh, we did makes me discontent. What else could we do? Uh, see, this is where you're trying to find that middle way, right? Where you tried doing things in a way that would preserve the rat's life and that hasn't worked and now you've needed to move to the next step so you are living compassionately for living beings and it sounds like he may end up dying as a result of eating this poison but that's where the middle way is so that's why this precept isn't preserve all life at all costs it's learning how to be compassionate for living beings and it sounds like that's what you're doing There may be some other solutions out there, but you would have to talk to those type of people that are involved in those kind of things. Because I live in a Buddhist country, there's various companies that have set up to do these kind of things in ways that don't cause harm. When I was living in America, I wasn't really looking for those kind of companies, and I don't know how many of those exist, but you may need to do some research to find out on your own how to maybe rid the home of this animal in a way that preserves its life 
but I don't have that knowledge in terms of how to actually do that. But you may be able to find something on the internet or with a company in your country that can maybe provide some professional insight how to do that. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. All right. So let's move to the next precept. Much more straightforward, much simpler in terms of all the different components that we're going to talk about. Here, this one is abandoning the taking of what is not given, living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given without stealing. Now, this one's usually translated as no stealing, but there's so much more here that the Buddha is sharing with us. Abandoning the taking of what is not given, right? This is essentially ensuring that whenever you choose to use something, that you're not just taking it. That if you are involved in a work environment or at a school or something like this, you don't just walk over to someone's desk and grab things off their desk and use it, even though it's the company's supplies, because this person may be attached to their yellow post-it notes or their stapler or their tape, right? So the Buddha is teaching you here, essentially this natural law of Gaiman, how to get along with other beings even if they're not practicing these teachings. So if we assume that something can be taken or used and we take those post-it notes off the person's desk, even though it's the same company and the company provided the supplies, we can be causing harm. So we need to make sure that we ask politely, that we take the effort to ask, hey, Susie, I'm all out of post-it notes. Can I use some of yours, right? And this will help you get along where people won't view you as you know, taking something that doesn't really necessarily belong to you. And, and we can oftentimes get confused because we think like, hold on a second, these are all supplies from the company. Why can't I just go over there and take that? Or, hey, I paid tuition at this school. Why can't I just use the stapler of on my teacher's desk? Well, that's because they've kind of acquired these things and the most polite, kind, friendly, and respectful thing to do would just be to ask before you use it and ensure that you can use it. Accepting what is given. This is an important one. We haven't really talked about this in depth, but as we go about our day, there's oftentimes people who are going to be practicing generosity with us. Even in non-Buddhist countries, people practice generosity. But particularly in a Buddhist society, there's going to be people who practice generosity. And when somebody offers you something, they're practicing generosity. It's good for their mind. It's producing wholesome karma for them. And that's important to allow that to happen. Sometimes when somebody offers us something, we say, no, you know, I don't want that. And we reject the offering that they give us. Well, if you do that, you're basically blocking their ability to practice generosity. And they're going to feel hurt because of that for people who aren't enlightened, essentially, because they have a certain interest to share with you and practice this generosity. So what this precept is also teaching us is that we should accept what is given, even if you don't need it, even if you can't use it, even it's not something that you would ever use. If someone offers you something, you just accept it. One of the things that we do in Western society, at least when I was living in America, we feel that once we accept something, we've got to keep it. And this is one of the reasons why we tend to reject things that we don't want. Because 
we feel like, gosh, if I take this thing from them, I'm going to have to keep it. Or I feel like I'm maybe taking advantage of them and I don't want to do that. Well, if somebody's offering you something, they're offering you something out of the kindness of their heart so you can feel comfortable to take it. And then once you accept it as a gift, you don't have to keep it, right? This whole practice is about letting go. But what you're doing there is you're allowing a person to practice generosity. And then once they do, if you give that to somebody else that can use it and you don't need it, well, now you're practicing generosity, right? And what happens is things that are given can maybe go through five, six, eight different hands before it actually ends up in the hands of somebody that can use it. Rather than receiving a gift and letting it sit in your closet for 20 years and it deteriorates and you never use it, that would be kind of a waste of resources. Here, what you can do is you can accept a gift. It allows that person to practice generosity. And then you can practice generosity by giving it to somebody else if you don't need it. Or even if you do need it, but you're just like, hey, I've already got plenty of these. Let me give it to somebody else. And then it kind of passes around and everybody's sharing. Everybody's giving, right? And this is really good for the mind that we recognize this interconnectivity that we have amongst all of us and we can share with each other. And then the last part of this precept is awaiting what is given. If we ask people for things in situations, say your your parents are leaving and they're going on a trip and you're like, oh, buy me this. You've got to buy me that or you've got to buy me that. This puts obligations on the person. And now when the person is out and about doing what they need to do, you know, they may feel required to buy this for you. Where a better practice would be to just awaiting what is given, right? The Buddha, when he walked through the streets in order to eat and gather food, they basically just walked down the street and whoever ended up making them an offering, they would accept the offering. Sometimes people say that monks or aesthetics are beggars or begging for food. They're not actually begging for food. They're just walking down the street and allowing people to make offerings of generosity if they choose. And as they walk, if somebody stops them, they will stop and accept the offering. But they're awaiting what is given. They're not actually asking for something. And you can see this the way that I practice as well, that you never hear me say at the end of class, like, okay, now that I've taught this class, be sure you go to the website and make a donation, right? I don't do that because I'm awaiting what is given. I don't have any expectation of what should be given to me. I just await what is given. Whereas if we have an expectation that people should give us things, this is craving desire attachment. And if we put that expectation on other people to give us a gift on Valentine's Day or our birthday, or we're expecting a certain outcome, then this is going to lead to our own discontentedness. So if we're going to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, then we need to await what is given. And the other part of this precept is ensuring that we're not causing harm by taking things from people and stealing or even just inadvertently borrowing or using something without permission, but also allowing people to practice generosity. Do you guys have any questions on this precept? I was wondering if someone gives us a gift and we have reason to believe that if we give that gift away, that person will be upset by that. 
should we hold on to the gift? Would we be causing harm by giving it away in that instance? No, because that's their own craving, desire, attachment. They're causing their own harm because of their craving, desire, attachment. Thank you. We have no more questions at this time. All right. Let's move on to number three, which is a pretty big precept and involves a lot of content here that the Buddha was sharing. This is the one that's usually translated as no sexual misconduct. Well, what is sexual misconduct? (laughs) People will interpret that different ways. And that's not what the Buddha said. He didn't say no sexual misconduct. We just use that as a way to kind of shorten this up. But when someone dives into the real words of what the Buddha shared, you can actually see what did he teach in terms of sexual misconduct and what would maybe allude to that. And his words are very descriptive. And let me read them for you. He says, abandoning unchastity. Now, chastity is faithfulness or having just one partner. Okay. So he's essentially saying abandon multiple partners, having multiple partners. So abandoning unchastity, abandoning sexual relations with women. And I've made sure you know that it's men too, because he was speaking primarily to a male audience. So he used the word woman, but it's abandoning sexual relations with a woman or man who are protected by their mother, father, mother or father, brother, sister or relative, who are protected by their dhamma, who have a husband, wife or partner, whose violation entails a penalty, or even with one who has been garlanded by a man, woman or partner as a sign of engagement. So going through this, we can parse this out and we can look at what is the Buddha really sharing? Well, he's saying if we have sex with minors, this is going to cause harm. We had sex with minors. The minor is in the home with the parents. They're learning, they're shaping their mind. They're learning lots of different things. Sexual contact is very intimate. It's very intense. It involves the potential of a lot of attachment and it can move and shift this minor's mind in a way that is harmful. So a minor who's learning at home and living with their parents wouldn't be somebody who we should consider having sexual relationships with because we're going to be causing harm to that minor's mind in their development as well as their parents' ability to actually guide that minor. If we have sex with multiple partners, not just our own multiple partners, but even having three or four sex with people at the same time, this is going to cause harm in those situations. And it's going to produce unwholesomeness in our mind because we're going to oftentimes feel guilty and shameful about that. And this is why we experience STDs or sexually transmitted diseases. This is part of that harm that's coming back to us because we're causing harm. Having sex with someone while they're living in the home of their relatives is what the Buddha is talking about here too. So like if we had a relationship with somebody and had sex with them in the home of that relative, that's causing harm and being disrespectful to the family. But there's also situations where in certain countries, 
that people live together. They cohabitate together. There might be a husband and wife or husband-husband or wife-wife relationship that comes together, it forms, and then one or the other party moves in with the relatives as they're starting their life together. This is where you've got to understand the middle way is that this precept is saying, yeah, you know, we shouldn't have sex in the home of our relatives. This is wouldn't be respectful and wouldn't show gratitude. But then at the same time, if you understand that this family has accepted the relationship and has invited you to move into the home, then they've accepted the relationship and they know that sexual contact is part of that. In fact, you know, grandma or grandpa might actually be interested in having kids come along. So this is where you need to see that, you know, really wide gray area and apply this in your life in the best way that works for you. When the Buddha says one who's protected by their Dhamma, this is protected by the teachings. This is someone who's chosen to no longer have sexual contact or be celibate. So if somebody chooses to be celibate, and they're doing that as a way of getting closer and closer to enlightenment, and we choose to entice them away from that interest to practice celibacy, then we're causing harm to their mind because they're not able to progress in their development on this path to enlightenment. And if we do that, it's going to cause harm to us as well. If there's people that are already in committed relationships where they're either already engaged to get married or they are married, or they're just boyfriend and girlfriend, and they're committed, and they should be loyal in that relationship if they're abandoning unchastity. So if we have sex with people who are in existing relationships, then that's going to cause harm. And this is why those relationships will sometimes get found out. The person will get beat up or murdered even. You know, there's plenty of people that have been murdered over this kind of stuff or people have lost their jobs uh, because of this. This is the harm that we incur because of the decision to have sex with people who are involved in relationships. Or if you have sex outside of your relationship, if you have a relationship and choose to have sex outside of your relationship and this can is causing harm to the relationship that you're in, it's going to damage the relationship you can oftentimes have a lot of challenges with your sexually transmitted diseases, with your job, with your family, with your children, with all different kinds of things can come of this. Now, even though this particular precept doesn't cover these next two, based on all the other teachings of the Buddha, we can understand sexual contact and that these things wouldn't be appropriate and wouldn't allow us to experience the elimination of unwholesome gamma. Just like the Buddha doesn't say, don't ever punch someone in the face. We know that if we punch someone in the face, it's going to cause unwholesome results and we're going to potentially experience unwholesome results because of that, right? We're going to experience those unwholesome results. So even though this precept doesn't cover this, I put this one in here because it's important as it relates to sexual contact. If we have sex without consent, like rape, that is going to cause harm. Therefore, harm is going to come to us. And that's pretty clear to see. This is essentially like stealing, right? So we should ensure that if we're going to have sexual contact with someone, that we have consent to do so. And you know 
whether you have consent or not to have sexual relations with somebody. Same thing, sex with someone who's human traffic. This would be like prostitution or services to sell sexual services. This is going to cause harm in the world based on the what we know from the Eiffel Path about right livelihood, where one of the livelihoods the Buddha talks about there is eliminating the livelihood of business and living beings. So if somebody's practicing that livelihood, they're creating harm for themselves. But if we have sexual contact with someone who's human trafficked, this is where we can cause harm for ourselves because once again, we can have STDs, we can get ourselves into all kinds of complicated trouble with the law. Oftentimes entering into those environments where people are human trafficked, there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's weapons, we might be robbed, we might be murdered. All of these things can happen to us when we're having sex with people who are human trafficked. So that's what I would like to share on this, but then there's also more on this. James, if you go to the next slide, there's what we just talked about with paid sexual services, but then I would also like to talk about same-sex partners. If you notice here, Gautama Buddha, when he describes sexual misconduct, he never describes same-sex partners as being harmful. There's other places in his teachings where he was aware of same-sex partners. He talks about men who don't identify with masculine qualities, women who don't identify with feminine qualities, and he talks about it, but he doesn't actually deliver any teachings about it because it's completely normal. There's no harm there. Because if we understand the universal truth of impermanence, then we know that every single male isn't going to be interested in having sex with a female. And every single female isn't going to be interested in having sex with a male. That would be permanence. If we're involved in teachings that are sharing with us that everyone's got to have sex with the opposite sex, this is those people's minds craving permanence, where that's not the natural laws of existence. That's not how this world works, that there's going to be people who have a loving, consenting relationship that come together, they happen to be the same gender, and they're not causing any harm to you or me or themselves by choosing to have sexual contact with someone of the same gender. That's their life. That's their choice. It doesn't impact me or you or anybody else at all. So same-sex partners, it doesn't cause any harm. And you can see that here that the Buddha, if he was interested in teaching that it does cause harm, he would have put it in this precept because he was well aware of same-sex partners. The same thing with transgender individuals. This is completely understandable if you understand the natural laws of existence. Do we think, based on the universal truth of impermanence, do we think that every being who is born into a male body is going to identify with male qualities? Or do we think that every single person who's born into a female body is going to identify with feminine qualities? Because if that happened, that would be permanence. But that doesn't exist because the natural laws of existence, this universal truth of impermanence, there's males who are born into male bodies who don't identify with male qualities. 
and there's females who are born into female bodies that don't identify with female qualities. Well, why is that? Yes, the universal truth of impermanence, but also this cycle of rebirth. Every single one of us have been countless beings in the past. We've been males and females of different species all throughout our life. Lizard, I might have been a female. As a snake, I might have been a male. As a whale, I could have been a female. And then, boom, I now land into a male body in a human life. Well, the mind may identify with female qualities, and that is completely understandable in terms of the universal truth of impermanence. It's also very understandable in terms of the cycle of rebirth because we've already experienced various genders as we've progressed through this cycle of rebirth. And then oftentimes we're taught that masturbation is immoral. And if we do this, it's going to cause harm and we're an immoral person. And we're made to feel guilty that if we masturbate, it's something that we've caused harm. Well, remember the natural law of gamma is all about not causing harm to other beings because harm is going to come back to us. If someone is masturbating, are they causing harm to another being? Well, there's no other being even involved in masturbation. So they're not causing any harm to any other being. Masturbation isn't necessarily something that you should aspire to do because it creates craving, desire, attachment in the mind and those pleasant feelings. It's the mind chasing after it. But this is where you've got to find the middle way too. There can be someone who maybe has three, four, five, six partners and they're having difficulties with craving sexual contact. And because of this, they're going behind people's backs and they're lying and doing all kinds of things to engage in the sexual contact. Well, maybe they've chosen to reduce that down to one partner. And then because of that, they're trying to extinguish the sexual craving and they need to use some masturbation in order to bring that down in order to be loyal to this one partner. This could be a wholesome application of using masturbation in that situation. And then once they bring the minds down to being committed and loyal to this one partner, now maybe they choose to purge the masturbation and no longer use it. So it's not that these topics that we're talking about today are black or white, that masturbation is all good or it's all bad necessarily, or it's all wholesome or it's all unwholesome. You've got to look at how you're actually using these things and look at it and reflect on it towards the goals of what we're trying to accomplish on this path to enlightenment. We're trying to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. Well, you're working on eliminating that ignorance or unknowing of true reality through learning in these classes. But what you're also working towards is you're working towards eliminate craving and masturbation can be a way for you to do that. But then also it can go into excess where somebody might be doing it five, six, eight, 12 times a day involved with even pornography sometimes. So this is where you need to understand your goals. What are your craving, desire, attachments and work to eliminate them, but don't feel guilty if you need to use a little bit of masturbation in order to bring your practice closer and closer in line with these five precepts. With that, let me open things up to questions and anything you guys would like to ask on this precept. We have no questions at this time, David. Okay, sounds good. Let's move to the next one, which is the fourth precept, 
relating to speech. The last three that we've been talking about plug into the Eightfold Path as part of right action. This one plugs into the Eightfold Path and part of right speech. Now, right speech by itself really encapsulates everything in terms of the five factors of well-spoken speech, which we talked about before, which is speak at the right time, what you say is true, speak gently, speak beneficially, with a mind of loving kindness and without blame. But this particular precept, if one wasn't practicing the Eightfold Path very closely, what the five precepts do is just kind of knock down some of the unwholesome gamma production, but it's not as a detailed teaching as the five factors of well-spoken speech. But we do get some more insight to the Buddha's thinking and what he was teaching here by learning this precept. His words are, abandoning false speech, refrain from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Now, the rudimentary translation is do not lie, right? But the Buddha gives us so much more than that in his teaching, right? Being a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. This is why we shouldn't be lying, because if we lie, then people won't look to us as being a truth speaker. People won't rely on us. They won't think of us as being trustworthy and dependable. We're essentially deceiving the world around us. So by us learning and practicing this precept of always speaking the truth, then we will be a truth speaker. We will be one to be relied on, will be trustworthy, dependable, and will be well received in the world rather than being a deceiver of the world. There's another teaching that the Buddha shares along this line that I've included here to help you guys see how closely he himself was actually practicing this precept. Here he's talking to his son, Rahula, and his words are, Even so unwise and empty, Rahula, is the life practice of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. So too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train yourselves thus. I will not speak a falsehood even as a joke. Right? This is how closely he practiced this precept because he was sharing this truth into the world. So even if he told a lie during a joke, people wouldn't be quite sure. Is this guy lying or not? Can we depend on this guy? He's talking about the natural law of gamma. He's talking about these different things, but yet he tells jokes and there's lies. So he practiced this all the way to the level when he told jokes that he actually told them with the truth. Now, people don't oftentimes associate a Buddha as someone who would tell a joke. But yeah, a Buddha tells a joke. He's a human being. He's interested in humor, too. He's not just going to be sitting in meditation on the clouds all day like some people might envision a Buddha. A Buddha is a living, active, engaging human being in society that is going to engage. And when they tell jokes, they're going to 
not use a falsehood. They're going to be able to tell jokes and still be truthful. And here you can see in this particular teaching too, where the Buddha talks about someone who lies, there's no evil that they wouldn't do. This can help inform your decisions about life partners who you choose to involve in your life, employees who you choose to involve in your company if you are hiring employees, maybe friends or people around you. Not that we're judging these people, not that we're looking down on them, but if you choose to involve people in your life that are lying to you, there's no evil that they're unwilling to do. And this is an indication for you of whether you might choose to involve this person in your life. So understanding this can help you not only improve your own practice of right speech and helping you to be a true speaker, one to be relied on and trustworthy, dependable, but also if you observe people in your life lying, then they probably are someone you can't rely on. They're not going to be dependable and you have to make a decision of whether or not you would include them in your life based on those things. And this is why we've been taught growing up as a child to never lie. And the Buddha gives us much more insight into why that is. Any questions on this one? No questions on this one, David. Okay. Let's look at the very last one, which is related to substances that cause heedlessness. I'll read it for you. This is normally translated as don't take intoxicants, but there's a lot more here for us to investigate and, and talk about. The Buddha's words are refraining from strong drink and sloth producing drugs, the basis for heedlessness. Okay, so let's look at this word heedlessness and make sure we understand what that means. Remember, on this path, we're interested in cultivating awareness of mind. Awareness of mind or mindfulness is all the cornerstone in addition to other things that I talk about that are really important as part of this path. Awareness of mind is really important because that's what allows us to cultivate the mind is being aware of the unwholesome things and the unwholesome things that are there. Well, heedlessness in substances that cause this, heedlessness is carelessness, thoughtless inattentive, uncalm, unaware, or unmindful. If we ingest substances that cause heedlessness, then it's going to cause the mind to be careless, thoughtless, inattentive, uncalm, unaware, and unmindful. And when the mind's in that state, it's more likely to cause harm in all of these other precepts. That's why it shows up last at the end we're more likely to kill. We're more likely to steal. We're more likely to have sexual misconduct. We're more likely to lie. In fact, all the teachings on the Eightfold Path, we're more likely to produce unwholesome decisions when we are careless, thoughtless, inattentive, uncalm, unaware, unmindful. So putting substances into the body that cause heedlessness is only going to hinder our progress on this path to enlightenment. So it's important that we purify our conduct and we don't ingest substances that cause heedlessness. But now let's look at this more closely because we can look at individual substances and talk about these. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, 
it would have been impossible for him to understand all the substances that are going to come after his life. So he taught in a way that's timeless, right? This natural law of gamma, it's not changing. These natural laws of existence, they're not changing from 2,500 years ago until now. So if people tell you that the Buddhist teachings are old or archaic and they don't apply to our life today, well, in fact, if they look at the true teachings that he shared, they 100% apply today because he was teaching about the natural laws of existence, which haven't changed. That's why he used this word heedlessness, right? Because he couldn't envision all the different substances that were going to come. I'm not sure whether marijuana existed during his lifetime or not. I imagine it did. But marijuana in some communities is viewed as a drug. Well, it can be, but it also maybe not depends on how it's being used and how it's being employed. It can cause harm and it can not cause harm. It depends how it's being used. If someone's ingesting marijuana to eliminate stress or anxiety or sadness or things like this, yes, that could actually all be remedied through learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings. Now, people are classifying stress, anxiety, and sadness and things like this as a medical problem, but it's actually not a medical problem. It can be remedied through the Buddhist teachings. So if somebody's continuing to ingest marijuana for those purposes, they're actually keeping the mind in discontentedness. They're not eliminating the conditions that are causing discontentedness. They're just masking the symptoms with some marijuana. So they're going to keep causing themselves harm because they're never going to be able to get rid of that discontentedness as long as they keep covering it up with marijuana. If somebody's looking for a high, for pleasant feelings, and they're using marijuana, yeah, this is causing heedlessness. It's causing them problems. But there's also situations that we know of where people are having seizures and they're applying some CBD oil, which comes from the plant of marijuana. And when they apply this oil, where they would normally maybe get 5, 8, 20 seizures per day, they can apply this oil and not get a seizure for three months or six months. So there's irrefutable evidence that this plant provides medicinal benefits, but it's all about how we use it and how we choose to ingest it. If we ingest a high-quality CBD oil, for example, this is for medical purposes in order to solve those particular problems of things like seizures or some people are using it for pain management and ultimately until they get to a point where their body is more healthy and they don't experience the pain. But if we're smoking marijuana, even if it's for seizures or even if it's for pain, we're causing ourselves harm because it's affecting the lungs, right? So this is our gamma. So you've got to look very wisely at if you're going to use something like marijuana, what is the real purpose for why you're using it? And how are you going to choose to ingest this in the body in order to get the medical benefits for it if you choose to go that route? Now, cigarettes are a whole different thing. There's no medicinal qualities of cigarettes whatsoever. The world is coming to understand this, that it's causing massive amounts of harm in the world. And a wise practitioner, in my view, would completely eliminate cigarettes from their practice because they're only causing themselves harm 
and through secondhand smoke, they could be causing other people harm as well. Then we can look close at things like caffeine. You know, caffeine is one of those things, just like cigarettes and marijuana, that is legal. But caffeine actually causes problems in the mind. It creates an overactive and anxious mind. And maybe you're ingesting caffeine now and that's where you are in your practice and you're choosing to do that. That's fine. That's where you're at. But as you purify the mind more and more and you make wiser and wiser decisions to purify the mind and train the mind to have mindfulness or awareness of mind and get closer and closer to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in the middle, what you're going to notice is that when you ingest caffeine, it excites the mind and it injects this kind of excitable, elated feeling and it makes it challenging for you to practice these other teachings. You might find that you talk very fast or very rapid. You might be very fidgety. You might have overactive thoughts and you're not going to be able to bring the mind to the middle and practice what you need in order to be enlightened as long as you're ingesting caffeine. And if you're choosing to eliminate this or any of these other substances that we talk about, you may need to do that gradually over time to allow the body and the mind to adjust to it. And there's different strategies and different approaches you can take to slowly eliminate any of these things. Typically, gradual is better that you just kind of gradually phase it out rather than try to go cold turkey and then feel guilty if you happen to use any of these occasionally. But everybody's a little bit different. There's certainly people that can just completely eliminate these substances and never go back to them ever again. There's some people that will tell you that psychedelic substances are beneficial on the path to enlightenment. In fact, they will tell you that taking certain substances will induce enlightenment, like ayahuasca or LSD or things like this. This is not true whatsoever. If psychedelic substances were all we needed in order to get to enlightenment, the Buddha would have taken those substances, he would have attained enlightenment and said, hey guys, just take this substance and you'll get enlightened, right? He wouldn't have had to spend 45 years to teach and share teachings into the world to help us understand how to attain enlightenment. So psychedelic substances are producing heedlessness, right? Carelessness, thoughtlessness, inattentive, uncalm, unaware, unmindful. Now, people sometimes get really hung up on if the Buddhist sharing, you know, refrain from strong drink or sloth producing drugs. They might say, well, when I take psychedelic substances, it's not a strong drink and it doesn't make the mind sloth producing. So, you know, what gives, you know, why would you not use substances like psychedelic substances? Well, that's why you need to look deeply at what the Buddha is actually really teaching and realize that he couldn't envision all the different substances that we would have come up with after his death. So that's why he said the basis for heedlessness. And our goal is to eliminate heedlessness cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind. So if you understand that about this precept, then whether it's right now or it's 500 years from now or 10,000 years from now, any new substances that come about, if it's producing heedlessness, then you should look at that and eliminate it. 
we can even talk about things like oxycodone or certain oxycotton, certain prescriptions that we use for pain management. These things are oftentimes used and are meant to be temporary to help us get over certain pains that we might have. But then if someone continues to take that, it's going to continue to produce heedlessness and cause them complications in their life. And they're not going to be able to get to this enlightened mental state. So even though that kind of thing isn't showing up in the book that I wrote or here in our talk, if you understand this word heedlessness, then you can make wise choices now, tomorrow, the next day, or 10,000 years from now. And you'll be able to make wise choices for yourself about not putting substances into the body that cause heedlessness because it damages the physical body and it damages the mind. So with that, I'll just open up to any questions you guys have on this precept or any of the others that we've been talking about throughout today's class. I wanted to ask David if you would include sugar in this list because research has shown that it has a lot of the same effects that we consider drugs to have despite being socially acceptable. So how would you feel that that fits in? Yes, what I noticed is sugar also can produce heedlessness if you take it in significant quantities. And this is where a wise practitioner having cultivated mindfulness or awareness of mind, you can observe this for yourself. Even though it's great that scientists turn us on to these things, as James is saying, scientists will turn us on to these things and say, hey, this sugary substance actually produces similar effects as cocaine, for example. And when you see that, it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to believe that. You don't need to believe anything and you shouldn't believe anything on this path. You're a truth seeker, right? You're looking for the truth. So you can look in your practice. Have you ever ingested an enormous amount of sugar and gone on a sugar high and then you crashed? Well, there's your evidence right there that it's producing this up and down motion of the mind and it's causing harm. So not that we need to fully and entirely eliminate all sugar, right? Because it's not a black and white thing. With sugar, it's not a substance like cocaine where it's this drastic effect of heedlessness. It's when you get to a certain quantity of sugar that it produces that. So you can kind of have a little bit of sugar and as long as you're managing that, being very aware of the mind, this mindfulness, you can ingest some sugar, you know, a little piece of chocolate cake or put a little bit of sugar in maybe a smoothie, a fruit smoothie or something like that. And it can just kind of give you just a little bit of energy because the body needs a little bit of sugar, just a little bit in order to maintain itself. But if you went in excess, right, you're not practicing the middle way with sugar, then it's going to cause you problems. So you have to be aware of the mind and ensure that whatever substances you're ingesting, whether it's foods or other things, that it's not creating this carelessness, thoughtlessness, inattentiveness, uncalm, unaware, or unmindfulness. Thanks, David. I was also wondering, in regards to the five precepts, given that we have the Eightfold Path, which shows the way to eliminate the negative karma that we produce, why do you think the Buddha decided to include five precepts to highlight that, essentially? This is the way the Buddha does the layering of his teachings. They layer. And they start, or not start, because there wasn't really a start and a finish. The Pali Canon is 45 volumes of books, and there's really no organization to them necessarily of a beginning and an end. That's what I've done in this book. 
is I've given you a starting point and progressing you in a very consistent way to kind of build this foundation from beginning to end. Because as you see, like now that we're talking about the five precepts, it's great that we talked about the middle way last week because it relates to the five precepts. So I've put things in a particular sequencing to help you further understand all these teachings and build up your practice. So what the Buddha does is he's layering these teachings and giving you various glimpses and understanding at deeper and deeper levels. And that's what I've done in this book. And that's what I do in this group learning program. And that's what I'm doing in the new book series and the Pali Canon in English program as well as I'm layering the teachings where they become deeper and deeper and it exposes more and more understanding to you. So the Eiffel Path can't contain everything. So there's kind of like this accessory over here that's giving us more insight into what right speech and right action really is. Thanks, David. That seems to be all the questions we have for today. All right. Well, as you guys see, these precepts that the Buddha talked about, they're not rules. They're not sins. They're not uh, something you need to fear. It's not something that some entity is going to punish you about if you don't practice. It's all about guidance to help you understand how to gain more insight into your practice. And through gaining this wisdom, you can make wiser and wiser choices for yourself. And as you learn this now, don't just believe the things that I'm sharing with you. You can reflect on this and you can look back in your life and you can see as you are making certain decisions, did they turn out well or did they not turn out well? And you'll oftentimes see that they're connected, you know, certain teachings of the Buddha, whether it's the five precepts or the Eightfold Path or something else, if something unwholesome is happening in your life, then that means you're making unwholesome decisions somewhere along the line. If wholesome things are happening for you in your life, that means you're making wholesome decisions somewhere along the line. The more that you investigate that, the more that you reflect on that and understand why through the Buddhist teachings, then you're understanding the natural law of gamma more deeply. You're understanding the natural laws of existence more deeply and you're gaining wisdom. And with that wisdom, you will have a likelihood to make wiser and wiser choices more and more. And when you do, that's going to develop your life practice where you're not causing harm in the world. So therefore, harm's not going to come to you. And you're bringing your conduct up closer and closer to that ideal. Remember, the Eightfold Path has those three sections, wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. And these are like dials that you're dialing your practice up and it's gradually getting better and better. There's gradual training, there's gradual practice, and there's gradual progress. And as you do that and you soak into these teachings, layering them more and more, and you bring your decisions more in line with what the Buddha is sharing, you'll see that your practice will improve. So therefore, the condition of the mind and the condition of your life will also improve. So keep looking at these, whether it's in the book, whether it's watching this class back through YouTube, whether it's listening to the podcast, whether it's listening to past podcasts or videos that I've shared in terms of this topic, the more that you learn about it, the more you understand it and be able to apply it in your life. And then if you're ever in a circumstance where you're not quite sure how to apply these teachings, that's where you reach out to your teacher. 
you post something on Facebook or you send me a private message or you schedule a personal guidance session and you're like, hey, David, I've looked at this precept. I've got this situation coming up and I need to make a decision here. And I'm kind of thinking about this and this kind of looks like it would work. But I'm just curious, what's your opinion? Right. And I'm never going to tell you what to do or what not to do. I'm just going to give you further information to help you understand things that you might consider, things that you might reflect on. So where your Buddhist teacher comes involved, if you choose, is not just sharing classes like this and kind of providing general content and books, but also if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're conflicted and you're not quite sure how to apply these teachings, you can ask questions online, privately, you can ask questions in these classes, and that's why at the end of most of these classes, I usually open up to all questions, not just about meditation, if we're in a meditation class, but all questions so that you have an open forum and an open connection to be able to say, hey, I'm looking at this particular decision, not quite sure how to apply these teachings. Can you give me your thoughts and your insight? And then it's an independent practice. You go off with your own free will decisions, your own understanding of all the different variables involved, and you make the best decision for you. Whether you use the guidance and advice I give or not, I'm not attached to that. And you shouldn't think that you know David's word is a final word. You should never just do whatever you think David wants you to do because I don't have any wants. I don't want you to do anything particular. I'm interested in providing guidance as people choose to seek that guidance. So feel free to reach out as you encounter certain situations that you need guidance on how to apply these teachings of the five precepts or any other teachings of the Buddhas into your life. And with that, you'll be able to gradually gain more and more wisdom. And what you'll notice is you'll become more and more independent where you'll actually be able to make more and more decisions on your own because you've consulted the advice of various people around you. And this is also going back to one of Manal's questions from a couple of sessions ago. This is where the community comes involved, that you can seek the advice of your teacher, but you can also talk to Manal or James or Bassam or Francis or Judith or some other member of our community. You can you know, consider their thoughts and their opinions of what and how they might choose to make these decisions. But ultimately, it's your practice. It's an independent practice where you're gaining wisdom, you're making decisions on your moral conduct, and you're making decisions for your mental discipline and learning how to control the mind through more and more mental discipline. So thank you all for joining. I really appreciate that you're taking a dedicated interest and you're being very diligent in your studies and learning. As you guys need help, feel free to reach out. On Wednesday, we're going to be in the fourth class of our Buddhist chanting class. And on next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter eight of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, which is titled The Three Poisons. In that chapter, you're really going to start to understand more of the real challenges in the mind, not just the guidance like we're talking about here with the five precepts, but what's the real problems, the real pollution of the mind. And you're going to get that when we talk about the three poisons of what's actually polluting the mind so that then we can get rid of that from the mind. So that's going to be next Sunday. 
So between now and whenever I see you again, have a really lovely rest of your day. Remember, always treat everyone polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. Take care. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.